Give it a countdown. Yeah. Five, four, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Stanley Piller. I'm a professional stamp dealer and I have been one for over 50 years. I'm also vice president of the ASDA. I welcome you all to stamp show here today. Enjoy. Look at them, madam. Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. This is the gentle art of philately, otherwise known as stamp collecting. Here's a pile of stamps carefully culled from swap meets and garage sales. Rufus, what are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Oh, like stamp collecting. Now, that's all right. That's quite a nice hobby, that. Yes, but it's not enough. Don't you understand? I'm lonely. I'm so terribly lonely. All right, Homer. You beat those stamp Nazis with good old-fashioned American complaining. Homer, if it weren't for you, we'd be at the mercy of weekend philatelists. You know, why didn't you just say stamp collectors? Because I'm tired of dumbing myself down for you. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that like, people actually watch this show, I was, I was actually pretty surprised. I'm Ernest Borgnine. I collect stamps. From Spain and two from Japan. I got a couple from Israel and Azerbaijan. I got a planet from Poland, but none from Sudan or from Fiji or Stamp collecting happens when we dream together. Welcome to Stamp Show here today, episode number 91. I'm Cash. This is Tom. And I'm your host, Dawn. Scott is in Seattle at CPEX, but today we have a guest expert, Steve Rosen. Hi. Hi, Steve. Hey, Steve. This day in history. 161 years ago, on September 9, 1855, in the craptastrophe called the Crimean War, the siege of Sevastopol came to an end when French forces overran a major bastion, forcing Russian forces to abandon the city and bring about an end to the war. For those who are confused about what this has to do with stamps, the Crimean War was one of the first modern wars and the first in which letters were sent home many of which were published in newspapers and giving rise to the fame of Florence Nightingale. It's also the last religious war, supposedly. 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 The Russians uh, were complaining about how Orthodox Christians were treated in Jerusalem, so yeah, that, you know, whatever. May as well... (laughs) That was the wrong button. No, it, it fit. We get emails. Time to summon the answer squad. Our first email is from DRH. As a topical, are there any pigs on stamps? Uh, yeah, there are a whole ton of them because of the year of the pig from China. Pretty much every country cashes in on Chinese dollars to try to uh, get it. So every country pretty much puts out stamps with pigs on it. And there are hundreds and thousands of them out there. So, yeah, 
Not as many as chickens, but there's a lot. Kind of like fruit on U.S. stamps. Like fruit on U.S. stamps. Yeah, there you go. Um, Do the uh, pigs on stamps, do they have methane on stamps? Methane on stamps. Yeah, actually, I'll bet you they do because I collected for a while periodic tables on stamps. And so I found a lot of that stuff. But I couldn't complete an entire periodic table. Sounds like a real gas. (laughs) Wow. Oh, that's bad. That's just, just, don't that's don't just, use it. That's just <laughs> Too late. It's already in there now. Yep. You're memorialized in history now. A noble gas. Mm. Argon. Mm. What is it? Uh, Argon walks into a bar. There is no reaction. My only, my only chemistry joke. Next, from Fletch's one... About a whole heap of 1980s to 1990s FTCs, which are first day canceled but unaddressed. Also, some postal stationery prepaid envelopes. Can I use them for postage? I will get better value that way rather than trying to sell them as covers. Uh, no. No, you can't. They're already canceled. Yeah, they're already canceled. They were used. Even though they never went through the mail, they still are canceled stamps. And if they, if you could use them... Man, that would really increase the value of first day covers. They'd all they'd all of a sudden have value. Now the postal stationery prepaid envelopes, if they are not used, I don't know whether you're uh, saying that they're first day canceled or not. But you can use postal stationery. You can use old envelopes. As a matter of fact, I use them all the time. Well, it says prepaid. I don't. I'm not familiar with those. So, well, just a prepaid envelope. It's got a you know. It's postal stationery. I, I think he needs postal stationery as opposed to uh, prepaid envelope. Kind of like the stuff Steve just got back. He has to make sure that the uh, current postal rate is correct. Do they put out forever envelopes? Uh, they may very well. Yeah. I don't buy them, so I don't know. I'll wait 10 years and see if they come in at a discount. Oh, I'm sure they will. <laughs> They're coming in at a discount already. Next, um, our friend Patrick Reedy. Oh, hey, Patrick. Patrick, hi. Hey, guys and Dawn. Still greatly enjoying the podcast. Just listen to Scarce versus Rare number 90. I think you guys made things too difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, right? Yeah. yeah. Not economic. <laughs> oh. No. Ah. Regardless of actual dictionary definitions, how the words are actually used is sometimes different. Scarce is how often or difficult something is to locate. This has nothing to do with how many of that thing actually exists. If only one stamp exists of a particular issue of variation, it is only on the market about once every 20 years that it is scarce. You know what, Cash? We should have him on the show to explain I know. This, where, were right? you, where were you a week ago? You were oh, you got to you gotta finish his email because he mentions the fact that we did talk about this in another podcast almost exactly as he's writing it. <laughs> Wait for it. However, that same single stamp, for whatever reason, comes to market every six months. It is not scarce. Being the only one to exist, it is always going to be rare. If 20 million of an item exists, but all but two are hoarded and never see light of day, that item is also scarce, but not rare. So I believe that scarce is a reflection on how difficult it is to find, see, locate, etc., an item, regardless of how many exist. 
Rare is an item in which, relatively speaking, very few exist. Both of these, scarce and rare, can drive pricing, but an item can have no or nearly no value even if it is scarce or rare or both. Value is a measure of desirability versus availability. Something can be scarce, rare, and nobody wants it. If you guys go back to a previous episode of Stamp Show here today, you discuss this, not sure what episode number, and your definitions then were substantially the same as what I have stated. Thanks always for the great job, and I will keep listening and learning. Thanks, Patrick. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to invent a time machine, and then we're going to take you back last week and put you on the air. Whoa, Doc, we're really here in the future, huh? Looks different from how I imagined it. Because <laughs> your, right. ex- your explanation was better than mine. Well, you tried, I think it's just you tried too much to nail it to scarce being in the economic realm. Well, I'm an economist. I'm sorry. I mean, as soon Who as... Who is scarce around the office. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I relate it to supply and demand. And as soon as you put supply and demand, I have to put on my economist hat. And when that happens, everything flies out the window. Even your brain. Well, they say if you, <laughs> if, if you laid every economist in the United States end to end. You would never reach a conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's heard that joke before. <laughs> That's time for Stamp Stories. The Comstock Law of 1873, otherwise known as Pornography in the Mail. The Comstock Law of 1873 was a federal law that made it a crime to sell or distribute materials that could be used for contraception or abortion, to send such materials and information regarding them through the federal mail system, or to import such materials from abroad. It was motivated by growing societal concerns over obscenity, abortion, premarital and extramarital sex, the institution of marriage, and increased procreation by the lower classes. Next to stamp collecting, that's my list of hobbies. Also, my friend's bucket list. Oh, Oh. Oh, I think that's him there now. (laughs) Excuse me, are you talking about pornography or uh, having fun with uh, your your crush? Uh, Yes! Yes! Oh! 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 I I couldn't answer better myself. (laughs) You broke Dawn again. We should start playing sound effects so she knows what's coming. <laughs> deep breath. Deep cleansing breath. <laughs> well played. Why problem make when you no problem have you don't want to make? Following the bloodbath of the Civil War and the emancipation of slaves, many Americans sought a return to simpler times, while other Americans yearned for a nationwide spiritual and moral revival. In the middle of this was 29-year-old Anthony Comstock, head of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, NYSSV. That's a great name. <laughs> it's a great NYSSV. We could Missive. you can have you can have a uh, TV show breaking the doors and stealing people's pornography. That's where the crickets come in.
Well, is it Nisiv a Portuguese colony in Africa? Not yet, so. Not yet. Oh, I spelled it wrong? No, I think you got it right. Nis, nis, nisiv Nyasa. It's like Zizek's Road on the way out to... Uh, oh, I love Zizek's. I've been there. You've been there? There's Twice. nothing there. Oh. No. There is for photographers. You want to know about Zizek's? Sure. Tell me, about, tell me about Zizek's. Zizek's was uh, a, uh, a, a, a... I think it was a Doc Wagner yes. who... Uh, Got the name right then. Okay. I think so. I think you're right. Doc Wagner squatted on the land. It was federal land. He was a well-known radio host of the 30s and 40s, had 300 syndicated radio programs, one-third of them overseas. He developed the place as a um, resort. <laughs> he had uh, baths with his uh, medicine oil. People came there, gave him lots of money for the cure. Uh, he was finally busted in the 50s or the 60s for uh, being a quack. Uh, the place was going to be torn down. The uh, Cal State University San Bernardino took it over as a desert studies center, and they run classes there now. I have been there all twice. The all the buildings are still there. Buildings hmm. are still there. It is like walking into the 1940s. I have to get off that off-ramp and go look at them. That's right. It's... <laughs> It's uh, down a dirt road, but uh, it's there. Yep. Every time uh, we drive past it with uh, Sean in the car, he always points out Zizix because it's spelt Z-Z-Y-Z-X. And uh, he chose that name because it would be the very last in the phone book. Yep. Well, I think it's the last on everything. Right. Doc Wagner died in Vegas in uh, either the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, you can look it up on the internet, and they'll give you a far better explanation. It's a great place. That whole bust is he had some sort of weird chemical that was, like, causing harm to people, and his, his cure. Oh, that's... I can't remember. That's uh, nothing new. No, I believe, <laughs> I believe it's known as smog. <laughs> they had that then, too. Guess who's going to be uh, hitting the YouTube and the Google tonight, huh, Cash? Yeah, there you go. Well, back to pornography. In 1873, Comstock got an act for the suppression of trade in and circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use passed. That's a no, complicated name. Yeah, really. Yeah, a little bit. Known popularly as the Comstock Law, statute's avowed purpose was to prevent the males from being used to corrupt the public morals. One of the... Uh literary groups uh, affected by the Comstock Law was uh, uh, Margaret Anderson and The Little Review. They were publishing Ulysses by James Joyce, and this is almost 50 years after the law, and they were uh, still bit by it. Ulysses by James Joyce is uh, very sexually oriented in many places, and one of the episodes in particular that drew the ire of the uh, of the authorities was episode 13, also known as Nausicaa. Nausicaa, from the original Ulysses, the Homeric poem, or o instead of Ulysses, Odysseus, if you like, Nausicaa apparently found uh, Ulysses on the beach and serviced him. Now that is kind of implied, so the old Odyssey would uh, be able to go through the mail because it wasn't really uh, obvious, but uh, Ulysses by James Joyce specifically has um, 
Leopold Bloom fantasizing about a young lady masturbating as uh, he as she uh, shows him her ankle. It was a different time then. Hold on, hold on. Can we say masturbating, or should we say like uh, tugging turkeys or choking chickens or something? Turkeys. What? Do we have masturbating is a perfectly good word. But we we could use a euphemism to like shield people, like you know, sexually arousing himself. Yanking the salami. I'm not sure that uh, I would go for that. Oh, okay. Where do we pick up? I can say sexually arousing himself. Okay. All right. So let's go back. So if there's so, any any police listening, uh, Steve Rosen, you can find him in the phone book. He's the one who said it. I don't think it's an FCC violation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Especially when that word is in the dictionary. Uh, Leopold Bloom sexually arouses him, him, himself and climaxes. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Can we say that word? <laughs> While watching this young lady's ankle, oh, and that drew you can't the, say ankle. Yeah, that drew the ire of the authorities, and Miss Anderson and her partner were fined one hundred dollars in the nineteen twenties, which is and like two million dollars today. Not quite that much. Oh, okay. And uh, of course, that was the end of serialization of Ulysses in, uh, through the mail via that magazine. I will say by the nineteen sixties. Ulysses by James Joyce was required reading in many English classes. Mm -hmm. Immediately after the law was enacted, Comstock was appointed special agent of the U.S. Post Office and given the express power to enforce the statute. Comstock claimed to have successfully prosecuted more than 3,600 defendants under the federal law and destroyed over 160 tons of obscene literature in his role as special agent. They said that uh, inside the Wikipedia, 15 tons, 30,000 pounds of books alone. That's a lot of books. Well, I guess he was really bound to his job. <sighs> you, now, you, I know you can't say that on the podcast. <laughs> we got to edit that out. At first, Comstock targeted what he considered to be easy prey, mail order services and low rent shops that sold cheaply produced photographs of nude women. Typically poor and uneducated, the defendants first prosecuted by Comstock often even failed to present a defense on their own behalf. Comstock next started indecency and high culture. Maybe, maybe. Ah, now you're talking. Maybe you should include Bolero in uh, your group of music. <laughs> <gasps> what, are, what are the uh, two dirtiest animals in the barn? Brown chicken, brown cow. Brown chicken, brown cow. Brown chicken, brown cow. <laughs> Prosecuting prominent art gallery owners for selling European paintings containing partially clad women. Uh, <laughs> oh, come on. You, this this is a joke, right? Yeah, we were talking about this last night, Cash. Uh, you know, what about the statue of David? I mean, did they have to put boxers on him? Well, no, he already had a fig leaf. Ah. Which, uh, yeah, which you have to con consider mm. that well, considering a fig leaf, it could be very uncomfortable. If you're allergic to figs, you're in real trouble. If you're allergic to the little things sticking out of the leaf, you're in real trouble. That's <laughs> called a penis. No, that's <laughs> called things sticking out of the leaf. Oh, the other direction. Yeah. 
Uh, is that how the, they stayed on? Could mm. be. They had to attach to something. Yeah. Hmm. By 1887, many mainstream Americans who had originally supported the Comstock law were now reconsidering that support in light of countervailing concerns over free speech. And stupidity, too, probably. Why problem make when you no problem have you don't want to make? I couldn't have said it better myself. Right? Yeah. In Bolger versus Young's Drug Product Corporation. Yeah, sex and drugs. That's a twofer here. How about rock and roll? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, yeah. Well, this is uh, before rock and roll. How about sex, before, sex drugs, 60s. and Gregorian chanting? Yeah, Gregorian chanting. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's before the 60s, you're right. Woo. The Supreme Court reexamined the reasons underlying the Comstock Law in light of the First Amendment standards governing commercial speech, which allow the government to regulate false, deceptive, and misleading advertisements if the regulation is supported by substantial government interest. The court concluded that the Comstock Law did not meet this burden. The government's interest in purging all mailboxes of advertisements or contraceptives is more than offset, the court said, by the harm that results in denying the mailbox owners the right to receive truthful information bearing on their ability to practice birth control or start a family. Well, that's the whole thing, is they wanted to get rid of birth control. They, if More. They, more. Yeah, they were talking about he wanted to outlaw all non-procreative sex. More to the point is legitimate medical texts were falling under the aegis of this law and Mm -hmm. being banned from the mail. Oh yeah, well one of them was uh, they had the question, you know, should you notify people how to avoid getting syphilis? And Comstock said, yes, that is something that we should not be discussing. And today, you know, that's ridiculous. Yeah, because I always thought it had an S and not a Z. You like Zizix? Depends on, depends on whether you're doing it on Zizix or not. <laughs> there you go. We have previously made clear, the court emphasized, that a restriction of this scope is more extensive than the Constitution permits. For the government may not reduce the adult population to reading only what is fit for children. Yeah, are there other... I mean, I know there are a bunch of other cases. Funny you should ask. Oh, okay, go ahead. Our woman in history is Ms. Ida Craddock. Oh, I have a picture of her right here, a rather handsome-looking lady. She was a writer. Her books include The Wedding Night, First Mention in Literature of the Female Orgasm. Are we allowed to say that? Female? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. You're pushing it. Yeah. I don't think we have any scatological references so far. However, I'm sure you can think of some. Like Zizix. Yeah. Right. Worst case scenario, Cash, if you really feel so bad about it, just put an explicit on this one. Oh, okay. I'll do that. And the iTunes police won't grab you. Oh, okay. Next episode is going to be nothing but Cash's corrections. <laughs> <laughs> Things you can and can't say on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, what My, is- aren't we touchy today? <laughs> Okay, um, the book Right Marital Living, Heavenly Bridegrooms, Psychic Wedlock, and Spiritual Joys. Craddock opened an office offering mystical sexual counseling to married couples. She dedicated herself to preventing sexual evils and sufferings and became famous through an editorial in defense of Little Egypt, a controversial belly dancing act at the World's Columbian Exposition held in Chicago 
during 1893. And as you can guess, her books were all deemed to be obscene and she fell under the long arm of the law and had to fight the Comstock law. Yeah, Little Egypt was a, uh, a belly dancer at the 1893 Columbian World's Fair. And idocratic, you have to get, she was sort of like the uh, Dr. Ruth of her time. I, I thought Little Egypt first appeared in Love Potion Number no. 9, a rock and roll song, or have I got this one mixed up? Uh, you're 100 years too early. Uh, had a very popular belly dancer that people were protesting, and she well, came was, out and said... Okay, it was like the introduction of belly dancing to the United States. And from what I can gather, it became controversial because Comstock didn't like it. <laughs> well, it seems and like... His, uh, and YSSV folk. Nissive. Well, Nissive. There, there's another Nissive. reason. Da, 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 da. There's the Nissive had a missive. Another reason you guys are overlooking entirely is these belly dancing outfits have coins attached to them, and the gals like to get right in front of the guys' faces, and they just knock their teeth out that way. It's <laughs> <sighs> happened to me. Oh. Oh. I guess there's a story. No, I won't get into it. <laughs> Mass distribution of right marital living through the U.S. mail after it was a feature article in the medical journal The Chicago Clinic led an 1899 Chicago federal indictment of Craddock. She pled guilty and received a suspended sentence. Do you know why she received only a suspended sentence for that? Because her attorney was none other than Clarence Darrow. No! What? <laughs> The monkey yes. rights attorney. Awesome. Giving rights to monkeys since uh, the dawn of time. Fighting against taking Darwinism out of textbooks in schools. Mm. I think was the case that he was, one of the <laughs> cases he was famous for. Later in a subsequent 1902 New York federal trial, Craddock was the subject of a sting operation and ended up facing charges of sending her book, The Wedding Night, through the mail, which ended with a conviction. Upon her conviction, she refused to plead insanity. Insanity? Well, she was a spiritualist. Yes. And she had uh, some rather odd views on some things. Well, her mother did try and get her committed at one point in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but she was married to an angel, right? So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, For 20 years. Yeah. Did she was they, married longer than a lot of us have been. Did, did, did they get a divorce in the end? or? I don't know. Is there a spiritual divorce? How do, how do you no, do, how do you break you up get with a animal? divorce in your hand, and not in the end? So insanity. Yes, she was offered the ability to plead insanity as a condition to avoid prison time. She refused and was sentenced to three months in prison, <clears throat> much of which was served in Blackwell's Island Workhouse, which I heard had pretty deplorable conditions. Mm. Well, it was a workhouse. Yeah. Just based on workhouse, it already has... And Blackwell. That's a, you know, dark name. Blackwell <laughs> Workhouse. Oh, really? I had the whole island thing going on in my head. Oh, yeah. Blackwell Island Workhouse. The, the name just sounds terrible. I, I think the island is in the Hudson or the East River and not in a more hospitable climate. So not like Catalina. Yeah, not like Catalina. Mm. Or Zizix. Or, well, that's not an island. I thought it was an island oasis in the desert. Mm. <laughs> Looks like just <laughs> desert in the middle of desert. They, they run the water and the power occasionally, yes. 
Upon her release, Anthony Comstock immediately rearrested her for violations of the federal Comstock law, and on October 10th, she was tried and convicted, the judge declaring that the wedding night was so obscene, lewd, lascivious, and dirty that the jury should not be allowed to see it during the trial. That is wrong. Actually, it's worse than that. The judge declared it so bad, he actually said, I don't think a jury should hear any of this. I'm going to try it myself. She did not have a jury in her trial. So that was, that's, I mean, that's pretty crazy stuff to me. That is. On October 16th, 1902, at age 45, she saw her five-year sentence as a life term and committed suicide the day before reporting to federal prison. She penned a private final letter to her mother as well as a lengthy public suicide note condemning Comstock, calling him, among other things, unctuous with hypocrisy. Yeah, she also called him uh, some worse stuff. She called him a pervert and a sadist also. So I don't know. I kind of like unctuous with hypocrisy. Oh, no, that's, that's I think pretty, that's, that's pretty bad, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> unctuous with... I mean, that's we're, get, we're getting like into some, you know, starting to get to uh, some Shakespearean insults and that. <laughs> Thou art an ave. Mm-hmm. So poor lady got railroaded by some dude who uh, just really had a stick up his butt. All because I think he got to, she got to him after the whole um, belly, dancer. belly dancing thing. Yeah. Because it became so popular that basically he couldn't do anything to stop it, and she was a part of that. Well, mm. but the belly dancing never went through the mail. Right, but, but that, was the, that was their first interaction, really. But what did... And it seems like yeah. he had it out for her ever since then, because, I mean... How else do you come out? As soon as she's released from her prison sentence of yeah. three months, he goes right he sw- after and rearrests her yeah. again. Yeah, mm-hmm. she walks out of prison and he swoops her up and says, "Hey, not so quick." And had and was having private conversations with the judge to the point where she was denied a trial by jury. Yeah, you know, because she was a pretty smart lady. Well, I think it's interesting because it, she couldn't have a jury trial because the book was so scandalous that you couldn't show it to the jurors. And, to you know, today we look but at it, it was and go, so, that's but it was, ridiculous. But it was so bad that he deemed it that there should be no jurors. Yeah, yeah, we can't trust a jury. Mm. Incredible. I mean, screams set up all the way. And this, this law was still enacted up until the 60s? Well, I mean, this went on for like 100 years? Yeah, almost? but in the 1960s, they very, very much defined it as... You couldn't ship pornography. And they had a really, really nice, tight definition of pornography. They, and the definition was such that Playboy magazine could go through the mail, no problem. It was a much better defined law. But yeah, this was in the, uh, up until 1965. I mean, now you can mail anything really through the mail. And, uh, well, but if you can't find it in the mail, you can find it on the Internet now. Well, that's true, mm-hmm. too, yeah. But yeah, she was actually, I mean, it may have seemed like she was a little out there. I mean, they succeeded in getting her put into uh, an insane asylum for three months without Mm -hmm. a trial at some point. Yeah. But this is a girl who went after the University of Pennsylvania to allow women to attend. And she would have graduated, except for the fact that they changed their mind partway through her her thing. Her attendance. And she partway through her attendance, and she wasn't able to graduate. Yep. And she went on to teach stenography to women and really kind of change that whole outlook to a point where 
you know, she actually wrote a textbook on the subject at 18 years old. Mm. So she obviously was really smart. Yeah. Definitely before her time, that's for sure. Way before her time. Mm-hmm. And now, Kaja's Corrections. Well, I just, I just have of a feather. Uh, well, I just have a couple things very quickly. Uh, first of all, political mail stands still at Hillary two, t- Trump zero. I've received two letters from Hillary Clinton and zero from Donald Trump. Second thing, important, important, the new Star Trek stamp just came out last week, so you can order those. They're available in press sheets and the like. Now, I think that this stamp looks terrible. It's an ugly stamp. and Stamp design has gone where no one dared go before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's much better for you to uh, go to the Canadian post office and buy their stamps. Yes. But, you know, if you collect U.S. stamps and you're stuck with these dogs, but they are available. And the last thing is we were talking about the whale cover, or the whale stamps. Uh, Speaking of Canada. Yeah, speaking of Canada. And there was a picture on the internet, uh, really nice, of somebody who was shipping something for $20.45. And it had two whale stamps on it, a full sheet, and it looked really, really cool on cover. And I I thought that was impressive. I wonder... Doesn't that, that though, give you... An idea when we said that the stamp was big, that you just said a full sheet was two stamps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it covered 75% of the cover. I would say that that was no fluke. Ooh. Oh. He's good. Yes, yeah, yes sneaky. he is. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ship him off to Zizix. I'm, uh, I'm finished. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's what they all say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, that's it. I don't have anything else. Except maybe uh, that, uh, like I said, we should invent a time machine because I was going to briefly address scarce versus rare. But since it was done so good by the emailer, I will uh, bow to him and say, well done, sir. Yes, well done, Patrick. Oh, my God. Who the hell cares? And now our expert topic. Measuring. Tom? Get a ruler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, he said it would be done in a few seconds, so now there we go. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't really discuss it. What do we want to talk about measuring? Well, uh, one of the things is there was on the internet that I just saw, I mean, literally just a couple seconds ago. So, so it must be true. A person had a one-cent banknote that measured really well, but it had like a dry printing to it. So we're not going to get into the whole grading thing. But how do we determine if a stamp is centered, fine, very fine, extra fine, superb, or Well, gem? I mean, it, it comes down to, um, you know, we measure to essentially the, was it the 15th of a millimeter, 20th of a millimeter? Mm-hmm. So 0. 0.10 millimeters, 0. 0.15 on up. And, you know, we use a, a 10 power loop to do it and... The stamp gets measured basically eight eight points uh, twice on every single side, you know, and that that judges how well balanced it is within the the frame of the white uh, the paper, and that is compared to a very very large quantity of items of similar stamps that have been measured before and created an average margin, and we know what that is. 
and those measurements are compared against the averages of the other stamps uh, to determine whether that stamp is big for its issue, small for its issue, or, or right in that, that grade range. And, um, you know, depending on how well-centered it is and how big it is, affects what that basic starting grade is. So we start off with our grading is a strictly a centering grade. You know, so something that's a 98, it's not going to be better than that. That's how well it is centered. The only where it can really go from there is down via faults. But if it has no faults, it just keeps that centering grade. And I always thought it was interesting. We, we measure eight points. We measure both corners. And that's because stamps are often crooked. Well, the stamps aren't crooked. It's the purse that are usually crooked. Ah, good point. It's the dealers that are crooked. <laughs> <laughs> I told you he wasn't done. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it is not, especially on older issues, it is not uncommon to see stamps that are cockeyed inside of their perforations. Right, which does affect how well it's centered because, I mean, you can have a stamp at like measures 0.5 on the top left and measures 0.8 on the top right and it'll do the same thing in reverse on the bottom and it you know it looks like a parallelogram inside of its frame not square mm-hmm. could we say that on the air parallelogram we could say zizik so i'm sure we okay. can say parallelogram well, we've been getting into a lot of edgy topics today so yes oh yes that's very good very good very, very good, good. Give yourself a hand. I can do that. I have the soundboard. (laughs) I'll take a few pointers from you later. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, the uh, measuring of the stamp determines the grade. The starting grade. Right. We use, instead of the words, we use the numbers. Because numbers have a better analytical basis than the words do. Like a definition for a 90 can be calculated much better than the definition for very fine. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, and I, the only thing that really can play into it beyond the, the actual measuring grade is, you know, eye appeal. You know, because even a stamp that's graded a 95, there is a high 95, there is a low 95. It's, it's going to move. You know, so stamps that are very low in the grade, you can look at it and go, yeah, it measures a 95, but it just doesn't, it just keeps going. It just doesn't look like a 95. And there's other ones that it gets a 95 and you look at it and go, wow, that has just this wow factor to it. Yeah. And so if it's at the high end. That's that's actually, okay, so I did lie a little bit. You actually can get bumped up. Something like... um, well, it wouldn't be a big bump. If it's a high, well, you're not going to go up like two grades, but if it's a really high 95 and then you go, wow, that's just a really stunning color, great printing. Um, I would like to interject that in the very old days of PSE, long before the current management, two bumps, two grades actually happened on occasion. Did not go over very well in the market. Yeah, no, I, I <clears throat> am very much aware of that. Uh you used to, if you submitted a used stamp and it had a light cancel, you could bump two grades. You can never bump to 100. You can never bump to the highest grade. But I have seen quite a few that went from like an 85 to a 95 just because it has a light cancel. That does not occur anymore. Uh, getting a bump of two grades is, I think, impossible. 
And if it's not impossible, it is highly, highly, highly improbable. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen anything that's been bumped two grades since I've been doing it. And like I said, you know, for a used stamp now, it's if it's not necessarily a light cancel, but you have to have like a really good, clean, you know, sock on the nose, middle of the stamp cancel to kind of go, wow, that's great, and it really shows off the cancel without affecting the stamp underneath it. Mm-hmm. You know, because you could have a sock on the nose cork cancel, but then you can't see whoever's face is underneath it. It's, you know, you're going to go down, not up. I remember seeing one of uh, uh, the three cent, I believe it is, U.S. Constitution stamp. I don't remember the number, but it had a, like, first month of issue or something. It wasn't a first day cancel, but it was just smack dab, smack in the middle of the stamp, and it was nice and clean and clear. I think it was like a Los Angeles cancel. It wasn't anything impressive, but it was just a beautiful cancel, and that one got a bump up because of the cancel. Right, and that's usually about the only time you get it. And yeah. again, one grade. If you want to go back 11 years, I have a 325, three cent Louisiana purchase, OGNH, 85 solid with killer color. It got a 95. It is still unsold. You can tell by eye the difference between an 85 and a 95. Absolutely. And people will look at a stamp and say, nah, that's overgraded. Well, that's what happened with the one cent banknote that I was commenting on. It measured 100, but it had like a sort of an icky printing to it, sort of an offsetting printing to it, not clear, not even. And so you look at it and go, yeah, it measures 100. And they gave it the hundred back when, but today you'd look at it and say, no, we, you know, grading has evolved and it evolved since really 2005. So from 2005 to today is really the modern period of grading. It wouldn't get a hundred today. It, it would get downgraded because of that offsetting. And I see this with us number 11s, by the way. I see really, really nicely centered with big margins. But in 1855, they had these really terrible terrible colors, worn plates. Everything looked, you know, just old and dingy. It's a grade 100. You measure it. It's got big margins. It shows the stamps on all four sides. But it's just this, and it's absolutely normal. It's natural. It's correct. It's an 1855 printing. And it just looks ugly. And so, you know, I would never it give Looks like that. somebody ran it through the wash. Yeah, it looks, yeah, exactly. It looks washed out. And so you sit there and go, yes, and measured. Yes, it's natural. Yes, it's an 1855 printing. But I'm not going to give it the 100. Right. Well, and I guess if you want to talk about measuring, since you brought up the uh, that issue, you can kind of, we can go into a little bit about uh, imperfs. Mm-hmm. And the fact that imperfs aren't actually measured but again it's it's taking the average margin the the space between the two stamps that would have existed um you know left and right and top and bottom and how much of that margin is on the stamp Mm -hmm. and that kind of helps determine it's you know it's great it's starting great it's not as much how well it's centered because it can look really well centered but if one corner at the bottom is cut too close yeah you lose too much of that average margin, and it's not going to get the good grade, even if the other three sides are huge. Yep. Do we get to go on on this 
because mm-hmm. I'd like to bring up the uh, the 1901 uh, regular issues mm-hmm. and the one center. Well, not just the one center, but all of them uh, have oddball. Uh, and then the oh uh, yeah you know the frame the, the frames are, there there are no frame are like lines. Three, right three, no three oh one three oh two yeah. yeah and then the uh, the Pan Americans a little earlier the Pan Americans actually um, don't get measured on eight points they get measured the top center and then the left and right get measured at the bottom edge um, where the extremities of the design mm-hmm. stick out the most on the left and the right, and then the bottom of the stamp gets two measuring points. Yeah, but the 1901 issue is even worse because you have virtually no straight lines to measure. Yeah. I mean, the 8 center, I think, only has a straight line at the bottom, and that's it. But we have eight measuring points on every one of that issue. Yeah. You just have to know where they are. Exactly. That's how, the tough part. How about uh, 3-cent-57s, 26s, for instance? Mm-hmm. Well, the 1857 issue is uh, treated differently in any case because they really don't have any margins. A lot of the classics don't necessarily apply as much because a lot of those were initially, you know, weren't designed for perforations. Weren't designed at all. Perforations hadn't been invented yet. Right, exactly. Um, So when they started perforating them, a lot of those stamps have almost zero margin to begin with. Mm -hmm. There are some that literally have zero margin. The two stamps touch each other. Yeah. So measurements are that that's seeing, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them over time mm-hmm. and knowing what the good ones look like and the, what the bad ones look like and placing the grade in that that realm. Well, my favorite two foreign, actually- foreign stamps is uh, Great Britain number 33. And all of the small margin stamps, uh, Victorian era from India, they literally do not have enough room to actually put the perforations. If you put the perforations inside of the white area, there's not enough room to hold the f- full hole in the white area. Rouletting. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, but it's very difficult to find really well-centered stuff in this time period because Perforations, like I said, just were invented that, you know, people say, well, how do you invent perforations? Well, they were indeed invented. People did say, we need a better way to pull these stamps apart. And they, somebody said, hey, let's punch holes in them. And at that point, they didn't make new stamps. They just took the old stamps and said, hey, let's put holes in them. Right. Yeah. Why, re- why reinvent the wheel? Yeah. Why make problem make when you know problem have to make? Yeah. Exactly. Why problem make when you no problem have you don't want to make? <laughs> but and that's where they started with like you know what was it per fifteen? Yeah, yeah. They started and and it's like okay these things are like practically falling apart. This is a little too close. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's something we can get into. I actually got um, an email that we'll discuss in an episode coming up talking about all the uh, the grand terminology we use and trying to explain it in um, layman's terms. The oh. words we use to make us sound really super smart. Exactly. Mm. Like, like oops. Like oops. <laughs> like Zizix, knowing where Zizix is. Yeah. Ooh. I might want to listen to that episode. I don't listen to any of these episodes. I think you guys are wasting your time. When is this going to end? We're at episode 92. We'll call it at 100. Uh, yeah. <laughs> make triple digits and we're, we're out. We're out. <laughs> Go walk a dog, raise cats, do something useful, ride a bicycle, 
We would like to thank the following for information used in this podcast. Findagrave.com, Wikipedia, Goodreads.com, NPR's Backstory, Freakonomics Radio, and idocratic.com. Thank you for joining us for episode 91. And Steve, thanks for hanging out with us. You're welcome. It's great having you. This has been Cash, Tom, Steve, and I'm your host, Dawn. You can reach us with your questions or comments at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com, Twitter at stampshowht, or leave a message on our Google Voice number 1-949-873-4298. You can also check out our website at stampshowheretoday.com or follow us on Facebook or watch us on YouTube. And as always, keep collecting. Hello, everyone. My name is David Kugel. And I'm one of the co-owners of Daniel F. Kelleher Auctions and Kelleher and Rogers Fine Agent Auctions. I would like to present our firm's growing list of services available to you in terms of how to go about selling a stamp collection and the steps one would take to achieve the best results for you. We provide boutique auction services to 100% of the philatelic market. All collectors with collections as little as $5,000 to collections reaching well into seven figures. We sell to more collectors than any other auction firm. Our diverse mailing list of active bidders is the world's largest. This is evidenced by higher prices realized due to collector competition and more underbidders. See for yourself at our website, www.kelleherauctions.com. We are the only American-owned international philatelic auction firm with offices in the United States, United Kingdom, and Hong Kong. We are also the publishers of the Kelleher's Collector's Connection, already one of the premier magazines in philately with a worldwide circulation. Any collector may subscribe without charge. Call, visit our website, or email us now. Let us work for you. The results will speak for themselves. And you can contact us toll-free in the United States at 877-316-2895. We are so delighted to be one of this podcast hosts today and really, really encourage you to enjoy philately, the hobby that allows one to enjoy life and live longer. This episode of Stamp Show Here Today is brought to you by the Philatelic Book of Secrets, the book that teaches you about repurfs, regums, color varieties, and much more. Get yours for $10 at www.philatelicsecrets.com today. No such number, no such zone.